0: This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer.
1: The Fed is, uh, without question, uh, the most important economic institution here in the United States. uh, Because we all uh, know that, um, you know, money makes the world go round. And and the Fed is the one that's responsible for that.
0: Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer podcast brought to you by Search Associates. My name is Nate and I'm your host, an American teacher in Tacoma still here in the gorgeous Moonyard Studios in North Tacoma. I am a vociferous consumer of news, as you know, if you listen to the show. And one of the things that I keep coming across are these inflation hawks. I keep hearing, and we keep hearing, and reading about how like inflation is coming, inflation is coming, hyperinflation is coming. Look at the prices, look at the prices. Oh, inflation, inflation, inflation. And it's interesting because that has been the kind of dominant meme of most of my adult life, at least in the time period like post-college when I was aware and paying attention to economics. And so. Inflation is one of those things where, like, we see it happening in our lives. Like, I know for sure that when I was a kid, that you could go to Taco Bell and get a taco for fifty-nine cents, and you can get a Na- Taco Supreme for seventy-nine cents, and you get a notch Na- Supreme for seventy-nine. Sorry, sorry for ninety-nine cents. It's so, like I remember those prices. I also know that, like, at one point in my life, gas was like what ninety-three cents a gallon. Uh, but at the same time, I'm told by the government that the CPI is telling us that inflation is growing only two percent, and so. I have questions. And one of the things I like to do on this show is I like to get smarter. And so I have a guest today who's gonna talk about this. My guest today is Bill Dickens. He's an economist. Uh, He retired working for Tacoma Power and now runs his own firm, BJNJ. Uh, His focus is in hydroelectric economics and natural gas market fundamentals and smart grid stuff, so lots of renewable energy. Uh, And he is a black economist who wears a bow tie in his photo, which I'm really into. And he comes to us on the recommendation of our friend, Representative Strickland. And so,
1: Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm so glad to be in this part of uh, the great city of Tacoma once again. So my favorite shows are
0: episodes where I have a guest on who talks about something that I know a little bit about and they know a lot of bit about. And so I studied uh, econ in undergrad, but you're an actual economist. And so I'm hoping today you can help make me smarter about this.
1: Well, I'll do uh, everything that I can. Hopefully I can uh, answer uh, the questions uh, uh, without uh, ambiguity and head scratching. And uh, and people can learn a little bit uh, more about uh, why the The science of economics is not so dismal as as some uh, like to think it is.
0: I'll take it. Although, if you want to get into ambiguity, this is a format for ambiguity for sure. Um, In the simplest terms possible, can you explain to me what inflation is and what causes it?
1: Okay. So, inflation as a concept in economics uh, finds its um, origin— in that branch of economics called macroeconomics, where we're looking at the, uh, the big picture, the aggregate uh, factors and indicators that uh, impact on uh, wealth and distribution of wealth and the production of wealth. Now, inflation as a term is a monetary concept that looks at the sustained increase uh, in a given price level. So when we... When we talk about inflation and economics, uh, uh, we're not, of course, uh, looking at uh, 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 the spike in, say, uh, the price of bread or uh, the price of uh, oil or gas that you pay at the pump. Although these things are important, uh, however, when we talk about inflation, we're looking at uh, the kind of uh, aggregation of an index of all things that People purchase, and we look at how that index uh, changes over time and, and whether or not it's sustained, whether or not it, it continues. So uh, that is what inflation really is, is the uh, sustained increase in a given price index over time.
0: Yeah, that – your use of the term aggregate and index resonates with me because oftentimes I hear and see people pointing to like one factor and going, oh, look how much this used to cost. Oh, my gosh, inflation's out of control. When in actuality, if we look across the board in many areas, prices have gone down. So like mm-hmm. computer prices now, like you can get a hell of a computer right now for very, very cheap. Same with TVs. But then other prices have escalated a bit. Uh, you mentioned aggregate in index. How does the government measure and report inflation to the population?
1: Okay, that's a very good question because uh, uh, typically uh, when we talk about the measurement of inflation uh, in the USA, um, around the world the International Monetary Fund has something similar in terms of looking at uh, global uh, inflation. But for the U.S., um, there are three indices that uh, that come into play. First is the one that we are probably most familiar with, and that's called the Consumer Price Index. Uh, and that's a, an index that looks at a market basket of a selected number of goods and services that individuals purchase, uh, and measuring those price changes in that basket uh, over time. Now, it's important to note that the consumer price index is really relevant only if the goods that you purchase is in that index. For example, if you're a vegetarian, <laughs> sure the price uh, the, the the price of meat at slaughterhouses uh, that that cause an increase in the price of beef that McDonald's will have to pay is irrelevant to you. So uh if, if, if you are basically uh, living in a world in which you're off the grid, uh, computer prices in the market basket, that's irrelevant to you. So the CPI is only really relevant uh, for those individuals who are purchasing those goods or services in that basket. Now, that's on the consuming end. On the producer end, uh, these are the prices for the things that are used in order to create wealth. Uh, That's the producer price index. So Mm -hmm. that's that's more like uh, uh, an input or wholesale measure of of price changes. And then finally, uh, we have the one that, that most economists are concerned about, and that's called the GDP, gross domestic product price deflator, which is like the the price index uh, for the economy as a whole, uh, and that and that one uh, gathers uh, the most uh, attention, obviously, because, again, for macroeconomists, we want uh, get to a, get a good picture about uh, the economy-wide effects of these price changes. So consumer price index, producer price index, and the gross domestic price uh, deflator, those are the three basic uh, indices that we use to measure inflation. I love that you laid it
0: out that way, because I'll be honest, I know a bit about the CPI. I know a bit about the producer price index. I never heard that third thing you said. So (laughs) I want to talk through each one of those for a bit. Sure. One of the criticisms of CPI that I've heard is a thing called substitution. Mm -hmm. So that like when the price of a given thing starts to get high and it's growing higher than the rate of other things in the index, that the government will substitute in another thing. Is that—so first, am I making that up? And then if I'm not making that up, uh, what are your thoughts on that methodology?
1: Okay. Well, the the methodology uh, uh, is—you're almost there. Okay. Um, The the substitution issue um, uh, is something that is looked at because when uh, when, when the prices of some things rise, then typically— that means that consumer demand is going to decline. Mm-hmm. Individuals will substitute other goods uh, as a replacement for the goods that are higher in price. So uh, that's that's how that uh, that that substitution is working there. Uh, and it's also true in reverse when when some things are declining in price in that basket, uh, consumers will buy more of the product that's that's cheaper or less in value, and less of the product that is more expensive in value. So, so you have uh, the substitution going up or going down, uh, which is going to reflect uh, what the likely buy-in behavior will be for uh, the typical consumer. So the consumer
0: price index is based off of consumer inputs that a general person may buy, lemons, jeans, bread, whatever, whatever. Right. The producer price index... What are the inputs for that? Is that like tractors or like how much it costs to buy a a, 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 a conveyor belt or a semi truck or what are the inputs? Uh, there?
1: Any raw materials oh, okay. uh, plays plays a, a big a big part of that. Yeah. Uh, uh, any any type of uh, product that's used to uh, create wealth that can generate value, uh, those are the things that producers need. So obviously there's going to be a price tag that's mm-hmm. going to be associated. Uh, with acquiring those particular inputs in order to create the output. Uh, you can think of the producer price index and the consumer price index as really an input-output relationship. Uh, the producers are providing the inputs and consumers uh, ultimately uh, will be purchasing the outputs. Okay.
0: And then that third one that I hadn't heard of,
1: just talk to me like I'm really dumb about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Sure. So... Uh, we we live in an economy in which uh, uh, gross domestic uh, product uh, as a whole uh, you know it's, it's approaching twenty trillion dollars. Uh, well, uh, for that aggregate size of the economy, uh, you know there are a lot of things uh, that's being uh, bought and sold. Mm-hmm. So so what the what the GDP deflated uh, attempts to do is to provide. Uh, the broadest type measure uh, for, for, the, for the goods and services that's reflected uh, in that GDP total of about uh, $17, $18 trillion. That's the, that's the size of the aggregate wealth uh, here in the USA. One of the things that was
0: implied in our earlier conversation about defining inflation is about prices rising. But the prices are rising because the dollar is losing or whatever currency, deer hums back in the mm-hmm. UAE, Bitcoin, mm-hmm. whatever, is losing relative value. So I'm perplexed. Perplexed is wrong. I'm curious about your thoughts about how inflation impacts people who are wealthy versus people who are poor. Because one of the things that I'm struck by is, is how oftentimes it's the financial class and the people who are like the investor class who are often very concerned about inflation. But it seems to me that inflation would actually harm poor people and they would be concerned about inflation given that it causes price of everyday goods to rise. And so I'm just curious, like from your point of view, how does rising inflation impact both... Let's start with that. Let's start with the mm-hmm. investor class. Sure. How does rising inflation impact them?
1: Well, for the investor class... Rising rise in inflation uh, is something uh, that investors pay very close attention to because uh, when they look at the decision to invest, Mm -hmm. uh, they're not basing it on what's known as a, a monetary investment. They're looking at it in terms of what's known as a real investment. A real investment is the monetary investment Adjusted for inflation, mm-hmm. so uh, if if inflation is on the rise, uh, that means that the the real value of those investment instruments will be declining. Uh, so for uh, the investor class, that's something uh, that investors obviously want to avoid because uh, the reason why. Uh, the majority of people are wealthy. It's because they made shrewd and wise investments based on real changes and not, not just nominal or monetary changes. Now, for uh, the, uh, the less economic fortunate, mm-hmm. is, is how I would describe those, sure. uh, that uh, uh, falls in that type of uh, income and, and wealth category – uh, inflation is really a pernicious tax uh, because uh, you already are constrained with regards to limited money. And now you're looking at limited money that purchases less. What inflation really does, and the reason why it's pernicious, is because the, uh, the value of the dollar that you were alluding to earlier, it's now changing it purchases less than it did before. So uh, for, for that particular uh, category of, excuse me, market participants uh, who are less fortunate, uh, now they're, they're faced with, uh, with the, dual, uh, the dual combination of fewer resources and also resources that can buy more in the marketplace. I'm struck by your choice of the term tax
0: because I've heard that phrasing before. And so I just want to talk through a scenario really fast. Uh, market returns right now are ridiculous. And people over the last couple of years have made 20% in the market if they've done a good job picking mm-hmm. the right stocks. Uh, they should pick index funds. This is not financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor. Leave me alone. Uh, but traditionally, returns are in the 7 to 10% range. Mm-hmm. But if your returns are in the seven to ten percent range, and the rate of inflation is two percent or four percent, then your returns are really in the oh boy, I have to do math out loud now. Seven minus two or four <laughs> or ten minus two or four range.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We're phrasing that as a tax. Is the reason why we're phrasing that as a tax because inflation is driven by monetary policy from the federal government? Or are we phrasing that as a tax because it's money that comes out of the pocket of consumers or both? Uh,
1: it's, it's more the latter than the former. Okay. Uh, the, the way in which uh, I use uh, the term tax here is based on uh, the purchasing value of the currency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's why— uh, it's it's viewed as uh, as a tax. Uh, it's it's not exactly like you know the IRS is going to be chasing you down sure, sure. And, and and forcing you to, to pay uh, over X number of dollars. But uh, but the reason why it is a tax is because uh, that key asset that you hold, i.e., money, is worth less. Mm-hmm. And uh, just like when the IRS uh, dips into your pocket, uh, you have less uh, money in terms of disposable income that you would have had before. So inflation uh, inflation works uh, in the same way. And if I could just uh, make a, uh, just a quick footnote, to, uh, footnote to, 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 to your point with regards to uh, investment uh, in terms of that uh, back-of-the-envelope calculation that you were— uh, Failing to make out loud, yes, yes. Uh, You you also, in addition um, uh, to inflation, um, in terms of looking at uh, that that real value of that asset, you not only have to adjust for inflation, but you also have to adjust for risk. Sure. Uh, So um, when you look at the inflation-adjusted and risk-adjusted factors, then the return— uh, is going to be closer in that range of three uh, to four uh, percent for a a typical uh, you know ten-year uh, Treasury note, uh, or if you're going to be uh, looking at um, you know buying uh, stock in a, in a particular company uh, like on the the high-tech stocks uh, that has a nominal yield of eight percent, so. Uh, these these adjustments are important because again, uh, they provide the best uh, the best picture with regards to what is is the real value of that asset.
0: That's helpful. That's helpful. So, going back a bit in the conversation, we were talking about the consumer price index, the producer price index, and that other magical index. The
1: that that GDP deflator. That one. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, I've been told for most of my adult news consuming life that the CPI. Uh, has told us that inflation has roughly been like two percent over most of the years. I've been paying like a lot of attention to the world. Mm-hmm. What are those other indicators saying to us? Are they also saying inflation is two percent, or are they producing different numbers?
1: No, they're they're, they're, they're slightly uh, different. Uh, the the, uh, the producer price index uh, uh, is uh, well, it's, it's about a half a point okay. uh, above uh, the uh, the GDP deflator. Uh, is about uh, two, three-tenths of a point. Uh, about, but uh, um, well, generally speaking, they, they will fall in that, uh, that same uh, framework. But um, uh, since, since most American consumers are more familiar with the CPI, that's why the CPI is used uh, more, uh, more frequently in, in, in the popular press.
0: So I just want to be really clear here because I'm having a moment of like, well, what's going on? the government is telling me that inflation is about 2%. You're telling me inflation is about 2%, but the price price index is a little bit more, but still in a pretty, yes. pretty reasonable range. Why are there so many inflation hawks in media and like in the cultural discourse right
1: now? Well, that's because uh, in in the last 6 months we have witnessed an uptick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uptick uh, is what is of concern. Uh, this is why the uh, the inflation hawks uh, have um, more or less uh, been uh, quite vocal and yeah. wanting to direct more attention uh, at, uh, at at inflation, and that's uh, that's that's due to you know some some things that has obviously happened over the last uh, year and a half. Uh, concerning the, uh, the global pandemic, that's, that's been a factor. Uh, we've also seen uh, changes uh, that's, that's occurring uh, in, uh, in international uh, energy markets, uh, uh, primarily uh, oil and gas. Uh, you know, now uh, a barrel of uh, oil, uh, which, uh, uh, say, a couple years ago, Um, You know, it was selling uh, at, you know, between $40 and $50 uh, a gallon. Now that's uh, up to north of $70. Even in March of 2020,
0: oil had a negative value at one point, which was insane. And, like, if I didn't care about the climate, I would have bought some oil ETFs, but I care about the climate, so I didn't.
1: Sorry, you were saying. No, no, right. Uh, So those those, uh, type of uh, factors is now what has uh, caused uh, many uh to say well you know we need to um uh be be a bit more vigilant now in terms of uh this thing called inflation because instead of enjoying uh that uh that that, that 2 2.5% range that we've uh, seen uh pretty much over the last decade i mean it's just been a, lo- a long run in terms of uh, inflation being "quote unquote" under control, but now uh, we're way out of that. Um, I think the most uh, recent data that I uh, saw uh, is now uh, a little ticking, a little over four uh, percent. If if these trends, particularly in the uh, in the uh, in the food and energy mm. uh, markets, those, those those are the two most volatile components of the CPI. Is food and energy, uh, but again, uh, if if you are a vegetarian, right, a, a lot of food products is irrelevant. Uh, if you basically uh, take public transportation, uh, you know what what OPEC is doing, will only just indirectly affect you because uh, you're not going to be uh, you know filling your tank up uh, every week or every two weeks. So. Um, So when you really take away food and energy, what really matters is what we call the so-called core, C-O-R-E, the core inflation rate, which is the inflation rate minus energy price changes and and food price changes. And that pretty much gets us back into that 2, 2.5 percent range. So shout outs to the vegans who ride their bikes to work.
0: You're doing well right now.
1: That's that's the great takeaway. Yeah.
0: I want to put a plug in here, by the way. We're going to have a future conversation about modern monetary theory. And I want folks who are listening to this to kind of just have a pin in your head uh, or a pin in the conversation for how the modern monetarists are going to look at this same issue and same topic. All right, we'll take a break here. And when we come back, I want you to learn me about the 70s because it seems like it was really, really wild. Hey, Farm Fam. It's no secret I've been podcasting from Abu Dhabi these past two years. But what I haven't talked much about is how I found this school ended up teaching abroad. During the hellscape of the last four years, Hope and I decided that we needed a change. And we turned to Search Associates to make it happen. Search Associates works with 800 schools in 125 countries, so we have many choices of where to go. They assigned an associate to work with us directly to learn more about our backgrounds, our interests, and find a position that would be the perfect fit. Hope and I both wanted to teach at the same school, which you'd think would make the search harder, but working with the search associates, you'd never know it. Their personal touch approach made it a breeze. Another great thing is that the associate who's assigned to help you is a former school leader, most often a former head of an international school. So they really get the international school scene. I can't recommend them enough. Now here's the thing. The political situation might've changed at home, but the benefits of teaching abroad are still clear. A great job combined with a rich cultural experience that comes from experiencing another culture. Listen, don't take my word for it. More than 40,000 highly qualified teachers, administrators, counselors, librarians, and interns, and other educators have used Search Associates to find positions in top K-12 international schools. So don't wait another day to pursue your dream of teaching abroad. With Search Associates, you'll take that journey step-by-step, from filling out the applications to selling your new school with confidence. Visit searchassociates.com to start your journey. Thank you to Search Associates for helping us live our dreams and teach abroad. And thank you for your support of this podcast. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show today. The Nerd Farmer podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Channel 253, our local podcast with local voices telling local and global stories. If you enjoy what you're hearing here and you want to support this podcast, which you should, there's two things you can do. Thing one is right now, Text somebody, tweet at somebody, DM somebody, and say, hey, I'm listening to this Nerd Farmer show, and they're talking about inflation. It's really dope. You should listen, send them a link. Thing two is if you want to support us financially, think about joining Channel Five as a member. Channel 253 podcasts are made here in the Moon Yard studios and overseas on Zoom sometimes. And we are trying to elevate and give points of view you won't hear elsewhere. We have other shows like Citizen Tacoma, which interviews candidates who are running locally. We have Crossing Division, Tacoma's talk show. We have the Interchangeable White Ladies podcast, which talks about being less basic. And I hear that my man Taco Man is in town and there might be some Taco Man coming up. And so if you want to support this work, Channel 253.com slash membership. A membership is $4 a month or $40 a year. Another thing, in an upcoming episode, I want to talk a little bit about local law enforcement. And so if you have a story about a time when you called uh, local police here in the South Sound and they didn't show up for five hours or when they showed up, uh, they basically told you they couldn't do anything about your situation, I would love to hear from you. Uh, Email me, please, at nerdfarmpod at gmail.com. Again, nerdfarmpod, all one word, at gmail.com. All right, let's get back to it. So you're schooling me on this, and I really appreciate it. We are talking about inflation, but the one thing that we haven't talked about that I think is related to inflation is interest rates. So we live in this kind of ahistorical moment where interest rates are basically like near zero, and so you can get a home loan with an interest rate of, like, 2.5%. And I think about, like, when I talk to my father-in-law, when they built their house, they bought their house in, like, 76 or 79. And they had, like, 11 or 14 or some
1: god-awful, like, credit card interest right
0: now. What is the relationship between inflation and interest rates?
1: Okay. Uh, great question. And I will uh, answer it by uh, doing something which is— uh, not uh, not cool. My my lit professor will, will chastise me, but I'm going to answer the question with a question. All right. Uh, uh, does the name Jerome Powell mean anything to you?
0: Yeah. He was Federal Reserve Chair, and I think he gets the credit or blame for quantitative easing.
1: Okay. Uh, very good. Uh, but not was. He is. Still. Dang it. Yes. Okay, uh, fine. So, so you— you get you get a, a ninety six. I'll take it. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> now the reason why I mentioned Jerome Powell is because, uh, as the as the chair of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, mm-hmm. uh, he is the second most influential person in the United States, uh, because the Federal Reserve is the institution that's responsible for the management of of money and the execution of monetary policy. The Federal Reserve is the institution that's responsible for money getting into banks, and the banking system is defined by the Federal Reserve's oversight. So, since the Federal Reserve is responsible for the management and the execution of monetary policy, uh, money becomes obviously paramount, and money is also linked with interest rates because when you have money, uh, basically the way in which money works is that uh, these are instruments or assets beyond the piece of paper Mm -hmm. uh, that, that give you legal claim on a wide range of things that you want to buy well uh, that that is why it's called legal tender uh, because it's a legal claim. Now, uh, when you use money for today or tomorrow, the price of money is going to be the interest rate that's 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 really how money gets into our system. Uh, in order to get access to it, there's going to be a price, a cost. That one's going to have to. Make. If you want to have access to money, you can get ten thousand dollars, but it's going to come with a cost, and that's that interest rate. Well, the Federal Reserve, being the guardian of monetary policy, uh, not only controls and manages money, but it also controls and manages interest rates. So it's 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 a kind of a long-winded uh, explanation, but uh, that's that's essentially. Uh, what it is, and that's how it works. The Fed is, uh, without question, uh, the most important economic institution here in the United States uh, because we all uh, know that, um, you know, money makes the world go round, and and the Fed is the one that's responsible for that. So... The Federal
0: Reserve Board controls the rate of inflation, and then their influence on the rate of inflation influences—I'm sorry, I said this wrong. Mm -hmm. The Federal Reserve Board controls interest rates. There we go. Mm -hmm. And their control of interest rates has an impact on the rate of inflation. That is correct. So if they raise interest rates, that makes money more difficult to borrow. Mm -hmm. And so people are less likely to borrow money, and that, in theory, should drive down inflation. So far, so good?
1: That's, that's correct. Uh, that's, that's what the Fed is charged to do. Uh, they, they manipulate what's something that's called the federal funds rate. Mm-hmm. And that federal funds rate is the interest rate uh, that is uh, managed by the Fed uh, for banks uh, that need overnight uh, lending resources. The Fed uh, puts a interest costs on that uh if 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 banks uh want to lend directly from the fed there's something that's called the discount rate mm-hmm. and the fed is going to put put a put a cost on that now now once the, the fed sets the rates then you have what's known uh as a tier structure of interest rates. Okay, this is getting uh, wonky. I'm here for uh, this. Let's go. Okay, let's go. The the, the, the the tier structure of interest rates means that uh, once once banks uh, receive uh, resources from the Fed, and when uh, when banks lend, because that's why banks are in in, in the lending business, uh, there's going to be an interest rate uh, obviously for mortgages. Mm-hmm. There's going to be an interest rate when you finance a car. Or interest rates when you want to upgrade household appliances, it's going to be a plethora yeah. of interest rates for my uh, for my listeners. Student loans it's, and student loans is definitely at the uh, at the top of the pecking order as mm-hmm. well. So uh, all of these rates have what's known as a cascading function, meaning that you uh, the, the mortgage rates is at the top of the food chain, mm-hmm. and then the others follow that. So when when the Fed changes, either the discount rate or the federal funds rate, that's going to have a cascading effect impacting on mortgages, uh, auto loans, student loans, et cetera, et cetera.
0: How long has the Federal Reserve Board had us basically at 0% interest?
1: Uh, 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 That's—we're going into uh, right around the— second term of the Obama administration, Mm -hmm. uh, when the Fed was under the leadership of a woman who's now actually the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, um, uh, that's when we really uh, began to see interest rates nosedive. Uh, And again, that was uh, uh, due to the fact that it coincided with accelerated economic uh, growth in the U.S., uh, we 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 got out of the uh, the Great Recession, thankfully, uh, and that allowed for uh, GDP gross domestic product to uh, begin to increase. And we restored three and a half, four percent growth. And as a result, uh, with more more goods in in, in circulation, uh, then the cost to acquire things began to fall. That's why interest rates began to uh, to plummet as well.
0: The layman in me, and also my lizard brain, goes, low interest rates, good, house, cheap. Low interest rate, good, credit card, cheap.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Me buy stuff with low interest rate, me likey, me liking. Why is that lizard brain, why is that layman wrong?
1: Uh, well, it's not, it's, it's not so much uh, that, that it's wrong. It's just that it... Uh, it recognizes that uh, the the logic uh, holds uh, under certain conditions. When certain conditions mm. are are in place, uh, then it's, it's perfectly fine. And, and the most important uh, condition is full employment, uh, uh, because as you get closer and closer to to full employment, uh, then then more people have jobs, more people are spending, mm. more people are spending. That means that there's going to be a greater demand for for money and with a greater demand for money uh that means that uh the currency value is going to change and the subsequent interest rates is going to change as well so uh so 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 keep that uh, type of uh, lizard mentality <laughs> but 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 only uh just ask yourself where are we in, ter- in relation to full employment because if we If we're getting closer and closer to full employment, the logic holds. If we're not at full employment, then this is uh, why uh, some have put forth this alternative monetary view called uh, MMT or modern monetary theory uh, because it recognizes that uh, uh, the conditions are not the same as when we are at, at or close to full employment. So I want to
0: get out of this and move to the to the 70s because that's that's where I wanted some learning. Okay, Traditional orthodoxy, if I have this right, has been times are bad, lower interest rates. Times are good, allow interest rates to rise and maintain at some number. But in this moment, we have basically a near decade of zero interest, and that's kind of unprecedented in American—well, I guess the entire financial system is made up like post-1973, like 1973, but like this is
1: unprecedented
0: basically as far as monitorships go.
1: All right. Uh, what we saw in the 70s uh, was, was really driven uh, by two primary uh, and fundamental uh, changes that occurred globally, uh, OPEC price one in 73 and opec price two in 79 Uh, during that time in the 70s uh, we were really a heavily uh, dependent Mm -hmm. uh, fossil fuel economy so when the when the price uh, shocks came uh, from opec that that really uh, caught the country off guard and as a result um, with, with soaring energy prices, um, you know, whether you had a car or not, uh, you, you saw the effect because it spilled over into other things in the economy because about uh, oh, 10 to 15% of all things that's, uh, that's produced is going to use some type of energy, some type of fuel. That's why uh, the index CPI increased that's what interest uh, rates. Somebody had to do something, and that's sure. that's, and that's what Paul Volcker uh, stepped in. Uh, you recall he was a six foot nine inch gentleman who who smoked these long Cuban stogie <laughs> uh, cigars, uh, and he was the the chairman of the Fed uh, at that time, and he made the uh, the, the tough decisions to uh, respond uh, to uh, not only the inflation but also the rise in unemployment. Uh, so we had that, that dual uh, effect of uh, rising inflation, rising unemployment, or what uh, some uh, describe as stagflation or the misery index.
0: Yeah. So I want to dig in here because – so I'm a very, very, very late Gen Xer. I'm a mm-hmm. Carter baby, but it was three months of my life. Yeah. I don't have my head around as much as I'd like to what was happening in that time period. And you mentioned that essentially the two triggers were like OPEC one and OPEC two and the Gulf states and other oil producers basically said, we're jacking on the price of oil. But I also know that there was this whole, if you listen to like conservative economists, they'll go on and prattle on about the gold standard and like Nixon and his economic choices that he made. And so help me understand what caused the unemployment spike that coincided with the inflation spike that happened in this time period?
1: Excuse me. Uh, great question, because that's, that's just something that uh, the, the typical American uh, is still somewhat um, uh, confused about. Yeah. Um, so um, let me attempt to try to demystify uh, what, what, what happened uh, during that time. Uh, because of those, um, those spikes— uh, that I just mentioned, those two triggers as you uh, described it, uh, that had the effect of, of not only uh, impacting on uh, the uh, demand for money uh, because uh, prices uh, began to just take off, but it also had the, uh, the effect of, of impacting uh, on the uh, demand for workers. And the reason why uh, workers uh, came uh, into the equation is because uh, the the inflation uh, also, in a very curious way, uh, had the effect of of, of reducing uh, the demand because with, uh, with 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 energy prices rising, um, uh, many many American consumers decided to buy less because that's the law of demand. Sure, when prices increase. You demand you you demand less when you demand less that means that uh, producers, manufacturers, employers see that the demand for their products has fallen so they began this trigger effect of mass layoffs I mean why why, why keep a payroll uh, if you are uh, at a company that really got Hit like like Sears, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know. Uh, people saw, you know, there was a reduction in uh, in buying all of these these retail uh, goods. So, so Sears reacted like, uh, like like many for-profit companies do. They started having uh, mass layoffs. Uh, so, uh, uh, this is this is what uh, created this 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 rather peculiar. Uh, association uh, with uh, money and with people uh, being adversely impacted uh, because of these uh, uh, global economic uh, events that were occurring, but it also spilled over directly uh, here inside the continental USA. Okay.
0: And for younger listeners, Sears was a store. It was like an Amazon you could walk into. (laughs) So one of the reasons that I heard that stagflation was so hard to deal with is is that, okay, i I, I use my hands here. In an environment where inflation is out of control or rising or a concern, the cure is to raise interest rates. But in an environment where... You have a recession and jobs are going away. The cure is—one of the cures is to lower interest rates. Correct. And so essentially the cures to the problems of unemployment and inflation run against each other. Is that a correct distillation of what was happening that, there?
1: That, that, that's, that's a very good way to describe the conundrum. Uh, this this is why uh, Mr. Volcker's uh, medicine uh, was something that— uh, uh, was even uh, difficult to, for him because, I mean, he was a, um, he was a pure monetarist. But he, but he recognized that, you know, during times of economic slump, mm-hmm. in terms of what we saw, uh, the, the Fed typically will lower interest rates in order to stimulate spending. But if inflation was accelerating, lowering interest rates is not going to, Uh, be an effective uh, deterrent uh, to inflation. So, Mr. Volcker and his other colleagues at at the Fed, uh, they they were really um, between a rock and a hard place with regards to interest rate and monetary policy. Volcker decided, uh, and this was um, his legacy, Uh, many have criticized it, but he had to make a choice. So, he decided that the biggest threat economic stability at that time was inflation. And that's why he went aggressively in terms of overseeing uh, the Fed-induced increase of those interest rates.
0: So he jacks up interest rates. My father-in-law buys a house at a 13% interest rate. mm mm-hmm my father-in-law is a very kind person, except about Jimmy Carter. So what Definitely. I'm hearing you say is that essentially Volcker's monetary policy leads to the high interest rates, contributes to Jimmy Carter being a one-term president during this high interest rate environment, and basically brings us Ronald Reagan.
1: That is right, yes, because uh, unfortunately for President Carter, uh, that, was the, that was the consequence of, of basically appointing uh, Paul Volcker uh, because the, uh, the Fed chair that he replaced was one who was not willing to make that choice. But but Volcker, uh, with this cigar chomping personality, mm-hmm. uh, when he testified on Capitol Hill, uh, he talked smoking that, that big cigar with an opposing figure, but he made it very clear uh, that he understood what the, the consequences would be about this. But that was the choice that he felt that was needed at that time. And if you got inflation under control, according to the uh, the, vocal, the Volcker uh, logic, then we're we in a better position to deal with unemployment later.
0: So let's spin all this forward to the present. In the present, we have an environment where we have basically zero percent interest rates. We have an environment where the consumer price index has been at about 2% and is now ticking up to about 4%. Mm-hmm. And we have an economy that's coming out of the COVID uh, recession, depression, whatever you want to call it, but does, has not reached full employment. So I'm going to ask you to do what everybody hates to do and put on your prognostication hat. What, like, what keeps you up at night is cliche, because and like, because you probably sleep well. I sleep well, honestly. Uh, but what are you anxious about in the next few years when it comes to the idea of inflation, interest rates, employment, and the economy?
1: Okay, so for for me, um, the two most uh, important uh, factors uh, that I I'm most uh, concerned about uh, one: um, uh, Will we still maintain an environment in which uh, technological change is encouraged? Uh, because new technologies is is the that's the ultimate long-term cure. Um, as long as uh, we are able to uh think smarter, act smarter, and spend smarter uh, if we can embrace those three things uh then then technology has has really uh, achieved its its purpose and its goal uh so that's 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 the first factor for me is uh, is technology uh, The second uh, factor uh, for me uh, which is uh, actually, somewhat uh, uh, related uh, to uh, to technology, uh, is, is looking at uh, where we are as a nation in terms of uh, something called human capital. Mm. Human capital, uh, of course, being the uh, the capacity uh, for uh, Americans um, to to have a, a stock. A stock of uh, knowledge, skills, and abilities that can enable us to uh, further uh, increase uh, our our level of economic prosperity. So, uh, if we can uh, can really uh, maintain and improve on that on that human capital stock, because uh, the world is. Greatly integrated, as you're well aware. and and in an integrated global economy, uh, you know the skills, knowledge, and talents become critical for uh, all Americans, uh, not just students, but even uh, people uh, who are, you know, age fifty and above, where we all have to retool. We all have to make sure that we're able to uh, provide Uh, a range of uh, credible market services that are high value added. That means that we have to keep human capital uh, at the forefront of everything that we do. So technology is one, and human capital uh, will be uh, be next for me. It's a
0: question for another day, but I'm sure you have thoughts on immigration policy, but I'll I'll hold that for later on. Okay. I want to thank you for coming on the show today and helping me learn more. I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like the audience has learned a lot. You strike me as not the kind of cat who's like on Twitter very much. So if people want to like get at you, they want to follow up with you, they want to reach out to you, they want to hear more about BJNJ. Uh, how can they find you?
1: They can uh, they, they can find me uh, by uh, simply uh, reach me at um, uh, dickensb uh, at comcast.net. Um, and actually, I do have a Twitter account. Okay, let's go. Uh, let's go. I just can't remember it. <laughs> I can't remember my handle. <laughs> if you get it but, to me, I'll put but, it in the show notes. I promise. But but I, but I can assure you, if you send me an email, uh, I, I I I will uh, give you my my Twitter account that I, that that you can uh, use. And by all means, uh, you can follow me there. You can follow me on Instagram. Uh, th- those those social media outlets are, are, are perfect.
0: That just means you got your mind focused on the important stuff and not on social media. <laughs> all respect, all respect, all respect.
1: Again, thank you for coming on.
0: Wakanda well, of forever, y'all. Wash your hands. Get vaccinated. Like, seriously, get vaccinated. Like, what are we doing? Get this libertarian onside here. Like, take the shot, stupid. Get vaccinated. And convict the police that killed Manuelis. Amen. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. I love a man who just speaks with gravitas and a pocket square. So, just (laughs) thank you so much. (laughs) Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is channel 253.